explore the night skies with our large range of high-quality telescopes. Whether you're a novice or an astronomy expert, we have the right telescope for you in our Australian Geographic e-store. Explore the whole range and find the right telescope for you today. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. Hi, I'm Angela Heathcote and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. John is an award-winning cinematographer specialising in oceans. He's been behind some incredible natural history films documenting the behaviours of sharks, crocodiles and orcas. His life is an example of how you can turn a passion for diving and photography into a dream job. So I'm really excited to talk to John today on this episode of Talking Australia. John, I'm so excited to have you on Talking Australia today. Um, So I know you're a cinematographer and your specialty is water cinematography. And you've been behind films like Blue and Turtle Odyssey and Sea Lions and shows like the Emmy-nominated Life on the Reef. And I have to say my personal favourite has to be Magical Land of Oz. Um, Just looking at your unique skill set, I'm wondering what came first? Was it like a love for the ocean or was it photography? Um, Thanks for the intro, Angela. Um, Look, I've always loved the ocean and by far the ocean definitely came before um, photography. Um, I was really lucky. I actually learned to scuba dive when I was 13 years old um, in the Caribbean, which was amazing and kind of been hooked ever since. Um, And I went on to study a marine biology degree at um, the University of Plymouth as well. So I've always had pretty close ties um, with the ocean and the photography came later. Um, But yeah, ocean is always paramount in in my world. So how did it, how did you kind of go into cinematography? Like, obviously, um, you started out as a, um, a really young diver. By the way, that's a very young age to be diving. Um, and then you kind of, you know, you did your degree. And then how did you kind of mould photography and cinematography um, into that? Like, how did that come about? Well, so when I actually did my marine biology degree in the UK, you actually had to do your commercial dive ticket at the same time. So I actually sort of went down the path of commercial diving a lot more and I, ended up doing you know i was working in the uk as a commercial diver which was pretty horrific and it's pretty cold dirty and, and nasty um but with that you know you, you really do become a, a very solid um experienced diver and i was lucky actually to help out in a few um productions as a support diver on um, film productions and that then i really that's where i kind of got my my hook for um photography and i really actually wanted to get behind the camera um I was lucky I then moved to Australia and I, and I started I bought a camera and I was shooting a lot of just you know the local wildlife which is you know stunning um, and I used to sell a fair bit of stock footage as well at the same time um, and then I probably my break came I started to work a bit with Andrew Eddinghouse from ET Escapes and doing a little bit of a few segments with him um, but then I did a ABC production um, Shark Harbour um, where I worked with Paul DeGelder um, and it really for me that was probably uh, the first decent production that I worked on as the um, principal underwater cinematographer um, and then from that you know I've been really fortunate to work on some you know amazing projects with amazing production companies um, so I've been pretty lucky um, and as you said you know some of my favorites Life on the Reef, um, Blue, Magical Land of Oz um, and then venturing into that IMAX world with um, Turtle Odyssey um, but yeah I think um, 
yeah, a lot, a, lot of, a lot of work and a lot of luck as well. And obviously filming in the water for all its beauty is at the end of the day, it is a potentially very dangerous place. So I'm wondering what kind of precautions go into filming, you know, animals like sharks, orcas and crocodiles. And have you had any really close calls? It's funny, actually, I, I, I get asked that question, you know, quite a bit. And actually, you know, everyone talks about the sharks and the, and the animals, but, you know, by far the most dangerous part of my job is always actually um, the logistical side of things. So more actually, you know, getting run over by a boat, getting caught in a propeller, getting smashed when the, it's rough conditions. Uh, that concerns me way more than, um, than the animals. Um, have I had close calls? I've been pretty lucky, actually. I haven't really. I wouldn't say I've had any specific close calls. I've had a couple of white sharks come come pretty close to me, and uh, I've had Andrew Fox pull me back in a cage when one came exceptionally close. Um, but I think probably my most not scary moment, probably exciting moment. But um, we're doing some work off um, Bremer Canyon, which is a, a canyon system about seventy kilometres offshore in Southwest WA. And um, we're filming this pot of orcas, and they just made a kill, and they're all kind of circling around. And I've been trying pretty hard to get in the water with them. And they've, you know, if they don't want to get involved, they don't get involved. And I, um, but I jumped in, and this one orca just beeline right towards me. And I was just, my heart was going, maybe this wasn't such a great idea to do this. And it came up, and I could feel it smashing me with um, its sonar and its echolocation. It just going right through me, and it checked me out. It rolled over onto its side, and then it lifted up its um, gums like a dog does and showed me its teeth. And honestly, it was the most amazing experience, really quite scary. But um, yeah, no, I think it was just a, you know, I spoke to orca scientists and no one really gave me a clear answer. But yeah, it felt very much like it was just, um, you know, assuming its dominance to me and saying, you know, stay away from our food. You know, I could eat you in a second if I wanted to. But um, yeah, it was a pretty amazing experience. Okay, well, I'm glad you're still with us after that encounter. Um, When it comes to obviously um, those shoots, I can imagine that there's, a lot of preparation and um, understanding animal behaviours and things like that. What is the prep that goes into um, doing the, these kinds of shoots? So I think you know there's there's a few different ways you know for the preparation. I think first is is a solid um, production researcher. So there is there are people that do an awful lot of work working out exactly when things are going to happen, how they're going to happen. Um, I talked to a lot of scientists and in fact it's, you know, it's a great thing having a marine biology degree because I can talk to scientists you know, not necessarily at their level but I have a good understanding of what they're doing and really they are key to, to working out animal behaviours, locations um, and then it kind of comes down to then logistics and weather and, and you know, matching that up um, and then obviously you have then the, the camera prep and everything else that goes with it and I think me personally so obviously you know, I go through I do it every day so I, I run through all that, that kind of physical stuff but one of the things I, I do is actually um, I'll actually visually like, run through what's going to happen and go through those steps in my head. And I think, you know, wh- what what challenges am I going to face and how am I going to overcome them? And I literally will you know, sit there on a plane to a location or whatever and actually kind of shut my eyes and actually just run through how my day is going to look. And I go through it and I work out what I've got to do and how I'm going to approach it, you know, to get the results that I need. Um there's a lot of stress involved as well due to the fact that you know there's an awful lot of money involved in a lot of these things to, to get to location um and so i think it's just a question of being prepared understanding what you've got to do um and it's very different to like that holiday environment where you're just going to kind of jump in the water and shoot some cool stuff and you know i have a very strict um shot list and you know and i want to stick to that shot list as close as possible um you know because otherwise it'll take an editor loads of time to run through footage which obviously costs money so it's key that you know i go through everything 
I shoot that shot list, I'm prepared. Um, and basically just, you know, go through that plan, which I've gone through in my head. I want to go back to something that you mentioned before about um, basically, you know, when you were coming into water cinematography, you got yourself a camera. I guess a lot of people who um, are fans of water photography, this I guess there's that step of how do I get into it? What's the best gear? It's so expensive. I don't want to take the risk. Like where, where do I kind of go there? So I'm wondering for the tech people out there, would you be able to talk us through, you know, that, that beginning, um, the beginning equipment that you had and I guess what you use now? I remember very early days, I spoke to um, Howard Hall, who's an, you know, an amazing underwater cinematographer, an absolute legend. And I remember exactly asking him that question. And, and he said to me, it was like, basically, buy the best you can afford, but don't go broke in doing it. So, um, and I think that's, you know, really solid advice. I think um, there's always going to be a better camera. There's always going to be, you know, the latest and greatest, but really, you know, work within your budget, never buy a camera thinking that you're going to get work that's going to pay off that camera because that's just not going to happen. Um, and I think also a lot of stuff is, you know, look at, look at the secondhand market. You know, you can actually pick up some amazing deals where people are always upgrading to the latest and greatest and you're picking up something which is, you know, two or three years old, you know, for a great price. Um, you also have to remember as well, a lot of your delivery, um, unless you're shooting for cinema specifically, you know, most of it's going to go online content. So it doesn't really need to be, you know, that amazing. I mean, there are cameras that were made 10 years ago, which are, you know, fantastic, you know, you know, I'm thinking about the Sony EX1. Um, that camera still, I think, the color reproduction from that camera for the size, you know, is amazing. Um, I started off, I can't remember the first, it was a PD, PD-150, I think, a Sony Handycam, which I um, purchased. Um, and look, I think, you know, at the time, it was a very mediocre kind of camera. Um, I got an Icolite housing for it, which is a pretty mediocre housing, but it was within my budget. Um, and I kind of moved from there. Um, now I shoot on an, pretty exclusively on, on Reds. Um, I do own my own camera, but I'm still in that stage where now when they've brought out 8K cameras and I'm thinking, you know, do I upgrade to that? Do I wait? Um, so it's always a dilemma. And I think, you know, you have to be smart about it and, you know, purchase what you can afford um, and, you know, go from there. The, the key is actually is the shooting part, not, not the camera bit. People get very caught up in the technology. Um, but I can tell you it's, you know, the more you shoot, the better you'll get um, and by getting in the water as soon as you can with you know something a camera which isn't necessarily as high spec um, will make you a lot better shooter um, and I think as well those lower spec cameras actually make you shoot better because they have more limitations so you have to work harder to get the better as good shots or, or better shots and as I said before you've worked on all these incredible programs um, have you got like a favorite project um, my favorite project so I think um, I think Magical Land was a was a was a, a favourite for me. I, I really loved working on that show. I kind of um, I know the director and the executive producer exceptionally well at um, Northern Pictures, and they kind of just were like, "John, here you go. You've got you know five days here. You've got two weeks here. You've got." And so they just kind of let me let me run and just shoot uh, my subject as I kind of wanted to shoot it. So that was exceptionally fun. Um, and then probably. Um, Turtle Odyssey comes comes in there as well because you know it was my first time shooting 3D, um, which was um, a challenge, um, but you know but, but a challenge I really thoroughly enjoyed. Um, and in fact, Turtle Odyssey as well was exceptionally small crew. It was ba mainly you know two or three of us on shoots, um, which is nice. It means you're very flexible, you're versatile, you can you move when conditions change. Um, and so yeah, I think probably those two have been my my favourite projects. 
Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. Plus, you will also receive exclusive benefits, including 10% off all products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. And just going off, um, you know, talking about Magical Land of Oz, that was such a landmark series for the ABC and I guess for Australian viewers because it was, I think, the first blue chip natural history documentary in something like 20 years. Um, I guess Australia is a really interesting place for making natural natural history films and that, you know, we used to have the ABC Natural History Film Unit, which shut up shop in 2007. And since then, it's been kind of um, hard to get things off the ground. Um, so I'm wondering, what's it like working in that landscape? You know, it was a, it was, I think it, it was a great commission by the ABC to do Magical Land. And I think it had great, well, it did have great, um, great ratings. And I think that gave them confidence um, I actually have now worked on, and it's going to be released this year, actually in, in probably a couple of weeks, is um, on the East Australian Current, which is another three one hours all on um, the ocean on the on the East Coast. And, you know, I think we are so lucky in Australia. We have such amazing um, marine life and, and just, you know, the diversity. You know, we've got the cool temperate waters of Tasmania. We've got that amazing kind of subtropical region of uh, on the east coast around the solitary islands which is probably some of my favorite diving in the whole of australia and then obviously we've got the the, the great barrier reef as well um and then west coast and southwest coast which is still so undiscovered so I, it's funny actually even when you look at you know our current circumstances with um you know covid19 and the fact that we're probably not going to, be able to travel internationally for a, a long period of time and i kind of look at that and go you know that's kind of a bonus you know it means that actually australian cinematographers will be shooting australian content um, because no one's going to be allowed in from other countries. Um, and we're l- so lucky in the fact that we have such diverse um, content and such d- diverse landscapes that we have so much to work with. And in fact, you know, all through this lockdown process, I'm getting calls from you know, the BBC, I'm getting calls from you know, pr- UK production companies that are wanting content and they want, want us to work. You know? And so when it opens up, um, we'll have a lot, of, a lot of work to do, which is fantastic. And how just, you know, in that, you know, you just listed off so many amazing um, landscapes across Australia. I'm wondering, do you have like a dream project in your head that you would love to do? I think still for me, probably the, an area where, which I have shot a fair bit, but I really, I think it deserves a whole lot more is um, down in the southwest, down in around that Bremer Bay, um, this Great Australian Bight. It is such a wild place. It's very inaccessible to, you know, a lot of people. Um, it's exceptionally hard place to work with the sea conditions. It's very exposed, but it is absolutely wild. You know, when we've done Bremer expeditions, we've had, you know, huge pods of orca. We've had sperm whales. We've had, you know, new species of giant squid that biologists have kind of r- discovered. Um, you know, randomly have manta rays there. I've had white sharks there. Um, so it's kind of an absolute crazy place. It's quite a scary, intimidating place as well. But for me, um, I definitely think there is um, a lot of work that can be done there. Um, and it could really, you know, it could be a few yeah, production, you know, of a real grand scale that would come off exceptionally well. Now, I want to talk about Blue. Watching that was so incredible and devastating. Um, and obviously, you know, um, it went into the impacts humans are having on our oceans. And I'm thinking, um, do you think that you have, uh, you know, a kind of really unique 
uh, or do you feel like you have really unique insights into our impact based on what you saw while you were filming that documentary? I do. I think, you know, having spent, you know, so long in in the ocean and, and, you know, I've had a relatively long career that actually, you know, I've seen changes, you know, but when we filmed Blue, some of the stuff was just, you know, it's horrific, you know, and I think even seeing, you know, stuff every day when we're, you know, down in, Tasmania or whatever and there's you know plastic pollution down there or you're out in the coral sea um and the devastation of you know coral bleaching um yeah the, I mean it's it's been hugely impacted um and yeah it really is sad and I think the the scary thing as well is that people's baseline of what is the normal is changing and it's and it's changing you know m- much for the worse right so everyone's saying oh you know the the fish in the ocean you know they're only 20 percent less or whatever but they're gauging that on you know numbers from probably 10 years ago in which that was dramatically lower than it was 50 years ago and so i think people are kind of not quite become complacent but i think that people you know are looking at this as a new norm and therefore if it increases a little bit they're like wait what a great success um when unfortunately it's not you know and we're having huge impacts on the ocean um and it's you know it's sad it really is it's really sad what I liked most about Blue was that it showed these kind of um, incredibly devastating images of the ocean, which is, I guess, not what we're used to when we see, um, you know, ocean cinematography overall. I'm wondering, um, obviously, there's been lots of criticism of um, David Attenborough of late of, you know, showing these really pristine environments and people kind of saying, well, wait a minute, that's actually not what that looks like anymore. That's changing at a rapid rate. It's not realistic. So I'm wondering, what's the role of natural history history documentaries um, in the age of climate change? I think that's a, a very, it's a great question, right? And I think that it's it's not definitely not an, an easy answer and an easy solution. I think um, when people see, you know, these amazing landscapes and the amazing marine life and amazing behaviours, you know, that gives people hope. It gives people passion, which you obviously want to do. When we do, you know, when we shot Blue and, and it's pretty depressing and it's very hard, um, you know, to watch, um, I sometimes feel that that audience, it doesn't necessarily get as far, you know, as far reaching because, you know, you're not necessarily preaching to the converted, but a lot of people who watch those films are already understanding of that, you know, of those issues. Um, so I think you really do have to kind of strike that balance where you're you're kind of doing both, um, where you're showing you know devastation and horrible things, but also you're showing the wonder and beauty to try and give hope um, at the same time. So I don't think necessarily any production has probably done that, you know, you know to a hundred percent, you know, and done it exceptionally well. And I think that it is a very hard balance um, to strike. But I think you know you do need to show both sides. I think you do need to show how amazing things are. Um, but again, you do have to show that kind of hard-hitting, um, you know, conservation aspect as well. But and I think it's just a very delicate balancing act of the two. And you talked about, um, you know, the idea of um, how, you know, sometimes uh, certain films end up like preaching to the choir or you don't reach a certain certain audience that you'd really like to reach. For you, when you're filming um, these sorts of, um, you know, incredible ocean cinematography, I mean, who do you hope that you reach? Whoever I'm filming, I think my goal really is actually to show, um, you know, the next generation, you know, the, the future decision makers of our country. You know, I think about my kids i think about them watching you know what i've shot and going wow that's amazing and you know wow that needs to be protected you know and i and i always you know stress with you know when i speak to you know younger people is actually you know it is amazing and there is a lot of amazing things in the world but we do have to be careful and we do have to make 
you know, significant changes in our lifestyle um, to make sure that these environments stay, or not stay, but get better, you know, that they are, that they're able to recover. Um, I think when you actually, I think we underestimate the power of, you know, mother nature and the fact that actually if we do stop doing a lot of these destructive practices, it will come back, right? And it will come back, I think, relatively quickly, but it just needs a chance, right? It just needs a chance to be able to recover. Um, and so I hope by reaching to the younger generation, the future decision makers, that they're able to basically um, really have that in their mind and actually think about policy change um, when they're older to make sure that the, you know, the environment comes first. Mm. And lastly, John, what would be your advice to aspiring water cinematographers, not just on the cinematography side, um, but also like, I guess, the diving side as well? I think the first thing, you know, above all, especially when it comes to underwater work, is you've got to you've got to have your diving absolutely dialed. I think um, you need to be 100% relaxed so you can focus on the task ahead. Um, it's very rare that we um, that I dive in pristine, not no current, easy conditions. Like it's not normally always bad weather and and challenging. I think that being confident in the water is um, by far um, the foremost thing that you really need to do. Um, and then I think you really need to just to get out there and shoot. And I think that the more you shoot, the better you get. You know, and you watch um, documentaries, you watch natural history work, and you you try and work out how those shots were taken. Um, and it's just it's a it's a long process, and it's but it's a rewarding process. And, you know, I would say that my my, my career has been ex- exceptionally fun, and you know, even you know now I still love diving, even you know. If, just as for pleasure you know and it's i think that it's just a question of spending time in the water shooting becoming confident diving in different environments diving with different gear configurations um but yeah it's just it's time is what you need time and actually i'm going to make my final question about something that you um mentioned just before um you mentioned you were shooting a documentary in the east australian current can you kind of give us um i guess a little bit of insight into what that might look like yeah so that um, documentaries with uh, it's a co-production with um, Wild Pacific Media and ABC um, commissioned it so it's a, uh, had a decent budget to do um, a show on and we're following the East Australian Current so we're starting off um, in the Barrier Reef but we're really we're, we only spend quite a short time up there and it's actually more on the you know the, the temperate regions and you know off the New South Wales coast we go down to Tasmania and it finishes off down in Antarctica and I think um it was a great idea and it's a great vehicle that east australian current but it's also very hard to visually show um what a current looks like um so that was a, a challenge um we used a lot of humpbacks as our kind of vessel to bring us down and up the coast which is you know and they're an amazing story of um, recovery um but yeah no it kind of looks at some of the areas i think where people haven't necessarily spent time you know one of my favorite spots you know montague island on the south coast um, of new south wales you know that we had a four or five days down there and it was just amazing we had like 40 meters visibility and we had so many seals it was just such a magical time um in the water and i think yeah so the series is three one hours um all down the east coast so and i'm something that i'm exceptionally proud of um again it was a small crew um that shot it but i think that it looks exceptionally pretty um series well thanks so much for coming on talking australia today john and i'm very much looking forward to seeing your new work fantastic angela thanks very much that's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talkingaustralia, 
you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening. Until next time.